What is in the Bible for young people? And when I started preparing this lecture, I wanted to know what the collection of human thought about this same question. So I went straight to Google. And I put this topic, this topic into Google. And I'm not sure if it was the first link I clicked on, but it was definitely one of the first. And it said this, that what the Bible has to offer to young people is the same thing it has to offer to older people. It's the same thing it has to offer to everyone. The Bible doesn't change depending on your age. And that's something that I wanted to make absolutely clear at the outset of this talk tonight. We're going to spend our time mainly looking at things relevant to young people tonight. But everything that we talk about is equally relevant to everyone in this room, old or young. And likewise, if you're a young person listening to this and you feel that this really resonates with you, then remember that this, these things in the Bible are true today just as much as they will be as you grow. The truth of the Bible does not change as you grow older. It's constant, unchangeable, and forever. And so with that being said, and as a somewhat young person myself, I understand that it is important to be able to connect with the stories and the teachings of the Bible. Sometimes when you're trying to start out, there's so many books, so many chapters and verses, it's hard to know where to begin. It can be overwhelming for young people to know where to start. And so tonight I want to start our talk off looking at three examples of issues that young people face today and show how some of the key themes and messages in the Bible can help alleviate some of these challenges. So the first example I want to look at is some of these challenges that face young people. Which, the first one I want to look at is mental health. Mental health remains a major concern for Australian young people particularly. There's high rates of anxiety, depression, um, and lots of other mental health conditions. 39.6% of Australians aged between 16 and 24, so that young people age group, almost 40% have had a 12-month mental health disorder at some time in their life. And it's females who are most at risk. The data shows that almost 50%, almost one in two females in that age range, 16 to 24, have had a 12-month mental disorder in their lifetime. These things can include something like a panic disorder, agoraphobia, social phobia, anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, can also include depression, substance abuse, among many others. All sorts of mental health issues and disorders, um, but all of these things greatly impact the young people in Australia today. And as you can see, those percentages drop significantly in the older age groups. If you look at the last two, the 65 to 74 year olds, in their much longer lifetime, only 11.4 of them have had a 12-month mental disorder at some time in their life. And the 75 to 85-year-olds, in their even longer lifetime, only 3.7% of them. And so the data is not only showing that it's an issue for young people, but mental health today is more of an issue than it was 50 years ago. The second thing I want to look at is substance abuse. Substance abuse is including things like alcohol, um, drug use, and it continues to be a significant challenge for our young people. It often leads to serious health problems, um, many other detrimental outcomes, and this goes along with mental health of, health, of course, but it's the males who are struggling more than the females in this regard. And you can see I've left the young people group blank for now, 16 to 24 year olds, because if you look at the 25 to 34 year olds, the male percentage is just under 4%. For 16 to 24 year olds, it's not double, it's not triple, it's three and a half times higher 
in that 16 to 24 year old age range than it is for the next 10 years of life. It's absolutely an issue that young people in Australia are facing today. And another one is unemployment. Youth unemployment remains a challenge in Australia. Many young people struggling to find a full-time job or any sort of employment to secure their financial future. This is the last quarter of unemployment figures that the ABS brought out. And you can see that 15 to 24 year old age group once again is much higher, almost double the next highest age bracket. So why are young people struggling with these issues? I don't have the exact answer. I don't have a one fix solution, but one very interesting correlation between these things are the fact of our makeup in families today. You can see we've got divorced single parent families on the left there, on the right married two parent families, and in the middle still two parent families but just the parents are not yet married. The children with a single parent family are twice as likely to suffer from mental health problems as those living with married parents. And you'd think that the difference between two parents married and two, par two parents unmarried would be not very much. But it's quite obvious from that graph there, the one in the middle is still much higher than the one on the right. The same study shows also that there's a higher incidence of mental disorder among children who have step-siblings, children from previous marriages or relationships. And this unfortunately has an ongoing effect on our young, our young people and children. Children with poor mental health are more likely to miss school. This can affect a young child's education, which then leads into their unemployment. It impacts the relationships they have with their peers, relationships they need at school and need even more as they become young adults in that 16 to 24 age range. Now, I'm not saying this is the one reason that we have mental health, substance abuse and unemployment, but it's definitely something that contributes to it. Everything, all of these three issues can be traced back, at least partially, to a less than ideal household makeup. But that's not where the issue ends. Why are so many families today divorced or living together but not married? Well, if you look at the population in Australia in 1970s, it's doubled today compared to what it was then. But the number of marriages has stayed the same. So why do we have so many more people but the same number of marriages? Well, the reason for this is that societal morals has shifted a great deal, as most of us are probably well aware. Prior to 1975, there was, one, there was 14 grounds for divorce, and you had to prove at least one of them to even be able to have a divorce with your spouse. One of the, some of these grounds included that you had to prove that your spouse had engaged in adultery, that they had deserted you, that they had been cruel to you, that they have habitual drunkenness, that they're in prison, or that you have to prove their insanity, among others. One spouse had to prove that the other person was at fault, and because of that, they therefore wanted their marriage absolved. And this was not necessarily an easy thing to prove. Often it required the hiring of a barrister or a private detective to conjure up that evidence against your spouse. And so, all of that to say, divorce was difficult prior to 1975. Married couples, if they had a disagreement, by and large had to work out that disagreement. But in 1975, Australia implemented a new law, the Family Law Act, and it removed the need 
one spouse to prove that the other spouse had engaged in one of those unlawful activities. Now divorce no longer needed fault from one party. It simply required an application and the payment of a fee. This allowed for what might be a difficult dis disagreement to more easily result in divorce post-1975. And whether we think that that law in 1975 was right or wrong, that's not really up for debate. It's happened. But what has changed in the 70s allowed for a greater number of separated families to exist. That's a fact. And because of that, a greater number of children and young people are now at double the risk of having a mental health disorder. In 2009, we also had the recognition of de facto couples, which only accelerated the issue. These laws, though, in 1975 and in 2009, those laws didn't shape how we think. How we thought shaped those laws. De facto relationships were being had well before 2009. The only thing is we've started recognizing it under the Family Law Act since then. And divorce can be difficult. It can be expensive and messy. And so for those in de facto relationships, what's even the point? Why bother getting married? So it is obvious then that marriage after 1975 is definitely less important. It means less to all involved. And by the time we get to 2009, what's even the point of marriage anymore? Why go to all the effort and the cost when you can just be a de facto couple anyway? Well, unfortunately, the answer to those questions is because it results in a twice, uh, double the likelihood of your children having a mental health disorder. That's why marriage is important. Unfortunately, society has taken a ho-hum view of marriage, and it's caused all of those issues for young people today. How we viewed marriage in 1975 has had impacts 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. The damage has unfortunately already been done. We can't change that. So how do we ensure that 50 doesn't become 60 and 70 and 80? Well, that's where I want to reintroduce the Bible. It may, may not be super obvious so far, but what we've discussed, the Bible talks about quite a lot. It has a lot to say about marriage, children, and divorce. Je Jesus talks about divorce in Mark chapter 10. The Pharisees come to him asking, is it lawful that a man can put away his wife? And they're trying to tempt Jesus here. That's the exact question that we here in Australia could have asked in 1975. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus responds in verse 3. He says, what did Moses command you? And they reply, saying, Moses suffered us to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered again back to them and said, for the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote that precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And because of marriage, a man would leave his father and his mother and cleave and stick to his wife. And the two of them should be one flesh. So then they're not any more twain. They're not two people anymore, but they're one. What therefore God hath joined together in marriage, let not man put asunder. And in the house privately, his disciples ask him again about divorce. And Jesus replies the same thing to them. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman puts away her husband and be married to another, she also commits adultery. So Jesus is quite clear. Divorce was not intended from the beginning. When Adam and Eve were created, it was intended that they live together, 
that they become one flesh, one body joined together for life. And God's intention for marriage has never changed. God himself never changes, as we read in Malachi 3 verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. God never changes, and his intention or his expectation of us also never change. If these morals from the Bible ruled our society in 1975, maybe our young people aren't facing such a high risk of mental health. Biblical morals are morals that we should all accept because they've been designed by God for our good. I'm not claiming that the world would be perfect if we had done that in the 70s. I'm not claiming that the world would be problem-free. That would obviously be naive of me. We are all human and we all make mistakes. No doubt there would still be challenges that young people face. Some might be the same, some might be different. But I'm confident that if God's morals had been adopted and kept from the 70s through to today, no doubt we would have fewer people at least impacted by these issues, or maybe the severity of those challenges would be lessened. That's the first example that I wanted to look at of how young people are struggling today and how society, in a way, has let them down. The second, I want to look at the idea of identity. It's a key, key theme throughout the Bible, and it's particularly relevant for young people. We hear all the time that young people struggle with or struggle coming up and finding their identity. The definition of identity is their qualities, beliefs, personality traits, appearance or expressions that characterize a person or a group. And lots of young people today not only struggle with their identity, but they struggle even knowing what their beliefs and their qualities even are. And just like we've just considered, there is unfortunately an underlying issue here which society is pulling the rug out from our young people's feet, causing them to struggle with this. Over the past five or ten years, it's become increasingly popular and very mainstream to, for there to be no longer the truth, but your truth. Truth is no longer objective today. It's subjective. What might be true for you it might be different for me. And this was popularized by Oprah when she had a TV talk show. It gained traction, and more recently we've had the Me Too movement, which has contributed to this. And to be clear, the Me Too movement, is there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very good movement for women in particular to tell um, and be able to speak about something that's happened to them. I don't know a lot about Oprah's show, but I can imagine that there wasn't a whole lot wrong with that either. It's simply entertainment on television. But there is something wrong with what these things have produced, unfortunately. The thought that there's no longer objective truth is just crazy. Neither Oprah's show or the Me Too movement needed to popularize this either. If Oprah and her guests and all those involved in the Me Too movement simply spoke the truth, that's perfect. That's exactly what we want to hear. But unfortunately, um, it's instead of promoting the truth, we've had a subjective and wishy-washy truth shoved to the fore in our society today. And that's the environment that our young people are growing up in. They struggle with identity, and they're struggling with that. They're struggling with their own qualities, their character, their beliefs, because they don't have a solid foundation of what truth is anymore. They have so much fluidity in their lives as young people. Their minds are changing, their bodies are changing, and now they don't have any truth to lean on. Two plus two doesn't equal four anymore. Sometimes it's five. And we're expecting as a society to, for our young people to work out their own truth. That's a huge foundation piece that sounds e is easy to say and a lot harder to work out for yourself. And then on top of that, we're expecting them to build their own beliefs, 
their own qualities and character. And then what happens if that truth changes? Everything else falls down. Maybe as a young person you found your truth. Maybe you've found yourself, as they say. You're confident in your identity, and maybe you've got a friend group with a similar truth and a similar set of beliefs. What happens if that changes? It could change for you or it could change for a close friend. But all of a sudden, when your foundation of truth changes, that rewires all of your beliefs and all of your priorities. And as a young person, if that happens, you're quite quickly without that friend group that you once had. And like we mentioned before, that age group, 16 to 24, that young person age group is a time when you really need strong relationships. And so that's the scary reality that young people face today. In 2023, subjective truth is objective truth. Everyone's entitled to their own truth. But this isn't what God says. God writes the truth 88 times in his word. Never does he write my truth or your truth as if it's subjective. Not once. And this is what God tells us to do in Zechariah 8. He says, these are the things you should do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Not your truth, the truth. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates and love the truth and peace. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said this in John 8. He said it to the Jews who believed on him. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and that truth, the objective truth, shall make you free. So it's God's morals, God's ways, and objective truth that can make us free. It can help young people provide that much-needed foundation to then build on their beliefs, their character on. Without that foundation as their base, everything else for a young person is up in the air. They need a solid, rock-hard foundation of the truth to stand on, and that can make all the difference in the world. I have a third example now that I want to share with you. We've dealt with the first example, dealing with mental health and substance abuse and unemployment, showing that that boils down, not completely, but somewhat, to fewer young people having a strong, supportive household. And we've seen how young people struggle with their sense of identity because a solid foundation of truth is no longer the case in today's society. Thirdly, now we also know that young people can have a difficult time coming to grips with finding their purpose. This is the third example I want to touch on now. And this purpose, or this, this calling, is thrust upon kids so quickly. At school, at the age of 13 or 14, they're already choosing subjects which will impact whether or not they get into university. And those subjects will impact what courses they can do in university, which then will impact their careers, which they presumably hold for the rest of their lives. And that's a lot of pressure for a young person. But if that's not bad enough, our society is also expecting our young people to find your why. Why are you on this planet? What is your purpose in life? According to an American survey, not surprisingly, the older people get, the more likely they were to agree that their lives have purpose. Young people haven't had as much life experience. They haven't been exposed to as many things, and so how can we expect them to find their purpose? Well, this is once again, unfortunately, where society is letting down our young people. This can relate to young people, but as we said at the beginning, 
This can extend to every single one of us. Our society places, places the wrong emphasis on life purpose. And I want to explain this through an, ex uh, an example. A hypothetical example of, imagine us building a robot. We could build a robot with two arms and two legs, just like all of us. And we could give this robot AI to be able to think for itself. Um, and if you've seen some of the more modern robots today, it's quite impressive what they can do. They can jump up or jump all around, they can do backflips, they can balance on poles high in the air. They don't look like this boxy robot anymore. But the robot that we hypothetically build now, imagine we build this and the whole purpose of building this robot is so that it can go out to work for us and we can stay at home or go out to school for us and we can put, pick up our feet and relax. The ultimate purpose of us building this hypothetical robot is so it can emulate us as best as it can and we can sit back and relax. As we build this robot, would we not be insane and foolish to not program its purpose into this AI robot? It would be completely foolish to expect the ro robot to go out and just find magically its purpose all by itself. And that's what our society is doing to us. It's telling us to go out and magically find our life purpose. And just like the hypothetical robot, we're, being, it's, we're, we're building it, we also have a builder. Our builder and our maker is God. He's created us and he created all mankind. And God has a purpose for his creation. And best of all, God didn't leave us wandering in the dark trying to magically find this purpose. He wrote it down for us very, very clearly. He describes it for us in Numbers 14, in Psalm 72, in Isaiah 11, and in Habakkuk 2:14. God's purpose is so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God wants his knowledge and glory to fill the earth. And we're told what God's glory is. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses specifically asks God, please show me your glory. And God responds in chapter 34. He says, the Lord, the Lord God. He says his, his glory is his character. It's being merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means queer the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. God's purpose with the earth is to fill it with his knowledge and with his glory, to fill it with his character. He's not going to clear the earth of us and let his character come down as a big cloud of gas or an inanimate object. No, God wants people to fill the earth that have the same character as him. Isaiah 45 verse 18 tells us this. God that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he established it and he created it not in vain. He formed the earth so that it would be inhabited. God's purpose for his whole creation is to have the earth inhabited, to be filled with people who emulate him. And there's so many verses that back this up. I've chosen two from the New Testament. Christ says in Matthew 5, Be ye therefore perfect, just like your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Emulate him, be like him. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, Be imitators of God, just like beloved children. And so if we as young people or however old we are, if we stop magically looking to find our purpose and look instead to our creator, to our builder and maker and trying to fill his purpose for us, then young people and all of us 
would live a much more purpose-driven life. We would live a more accomplished and happier life. And so once again, God's morals, God's ways, are ways that we would all do well to find out and to adopt because they can help remove some of the challenges that we otherwise might face. And so those are the, the la- that's the last of the three examples I'm going to at least start our talk with tonight. I'm not going to use the whole time and describe all the ways society is letting us down. That's not what tonight's about. Tonight is about the Bible and what's in the Bible for young people. And young people could absolutely and probably should take on God's morals. They should try to become more like God. And that can help. It will hopefully negate some of those issues that we've seen. But like we've said, some of the, the, past, the past has already happened. Some of those issues have been festering for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so let's look forward. How can we change the future to look brighter than it might look right now? And we had Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 read for us. So if you're not there, please go there with me. We're going to be looking at a few verses here. The book of Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book. It's a book which gives us insight into our life and gives us perspective on our lives. Perspective which, once again, can help anyone of any age, but it's particularly helpful for young people. Young people, through no fault of their own, have less life experience and therefore maybe a slightly lesser ability to be able to put our lives in perspective. And so Ecclesiastes is this book for us. And it was written by the preacher, or the teacher, depending on which version you have. And this teacher is thought by many to be King Solomon. There are some differing views, but regardless of who the teacher was, the teacher summarizes the entire book and leaves us this basic message. And he says it in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, and in the reading we did tonight, chapter 12 verse 8. This is what he says. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. The Hebrew word hevel here is translated in most modern versions as meaningless. It's not a completely accurate translation of this word, though. The actual literal meaning for the Hebrew word hevel is a vapor or smoke. And the teacher uses this word, this Hebrew word, 38 times throughout his book in Ecclesiastes. And he uses it firstly as a metaphor for our life to describe how temporary or fleeting life is. You can imagine blowing out a candle and there being a little wisp of smoke before it disappearing. That's the metaphor of our life, fleeting. And secondly, he uses this word as a metaphor as our life being a mystery, an enigma or a paradox. If we take, instead of the small wisp of smoke, we take a, a wall of smoke from a bonfire or a smoke machine. It can literally look like a wall of smoke. It can look like a solid object, but we know as soon as we reach out, there's nothing there to grab. So sometimes what we see, what we feel, isn't the full picture. We think that life should be a certain way. We think that good things should happen to good people, but life isn't fair. We think that smoke wall looks solid, but it's not. Life doesn't make sense sometimes. Sometimes things happen that we just don't have answers to. And trying to understand that, the teacher says, is like chasing the wind. It's hevel. And so the author spends this major- the majority of his book explaining all the ways that we think we're creating meaning and purpose in our life, and he explains how it's actually all those things are meaningless and purposeless anyway. He gives us a hard lesson in reality, and he starts by talking about time. 
He says, you can spend your whole life working and trying to accomplish things because you think that gives your life meaning and purpose. But just stop and consider the march of time. Think about all of the human effort and work that's been done over millennia. Sure, we developed technology. We've gone from boxy robots to really cool robots. And sure, nations rise and fall. But climb a mountain and see what difference it makes. The mountain was there long before any of us and will be here long after. No one's going to remember anything you did. No one's going to remember anything I did a hundred years from now. But the mountain is still going to be there. The ocean will still be lapping at the beach. The sun will still rise and set. And so time, as we take a large-scale view, time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. Time renders our life meaningless, purposeless, hevel. And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher then starts talking about death. Death is the great equalizer. It renders meaningless most of our everyday activities. And towards the end of the book, um, we, the teacher shows us that death devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor. No matter what you've done, good or bad, we're all going to die. It's inescapable. Death renders our life meaningless and purposeless in the big scheme of things. Hevel. Hevel, hevel, everything is utterly hevel, the teacher says. And so what's his solution? Well, the teacher does acknowledge that the ideas from Proverbs and other parts of the Bible that living by wisdom and by the fear of God do have real advantages. Going back to how we started the evening, we can see that taking on God's morals can perhaps result in lesser challenges. It can potentially result in a better life. But you see, the problem is that even if we live by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, our life is still heavy. Because these things don't guarantee us a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's too many exceptions, and so even a life full of wisdom, the life is heavy. Not, not, the wisdom isn't meaningless, but our life becomes an enigma, a mystery. It's not God's wisdom that's heavy, but it's our life. Life isn't fair, no matter how much godly wisdom we attain. So if our lives are nothing but hevel, what do we do? Well, the teacher tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that the key to true enjoyment is to accept this hevel in our life. Acknowledge that everything in life is out of our control. We'll take, for example, chapter 11, verse 3 that we read. It says, if the clouds are full of rain, they will empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the north or to the south, it doesn't really matter which direction it falls, Wherever it falls is where it will fall. Just accept it. If you worry too much about the wind blowing in verse 4, you'll never sow. If you worry too much about the rain, you'll never reap. Accept the fact that we can't change the weather, and accept the fact that we can't change life, or how unfair or how heavy it may be. Just accept it. We're not guaranteed anything in this life. But if we adopt an attitude of complete trust in God, then that can free us to simply enjoy life as we experience it, rather than trying to enjoy it as we think it should be, because even our own expectations of life are heavy. And so at the end of the book, the teacher brings all of this to a conclusion. He says this in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, which we read, Fear God 
and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God is going to bring every work into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And it's good for us, especially young people, to be reminded of this. To be reminded that our lives are heavy. Sometimes young people can think that we're indestructible. But time and death put life into perspective for us. We realize that we can actually control nothing. The only true meaning, the only true purpose in life is this hope of God's judgment. The hope that one day God will judge uh, this world. Um, and hopefully that is very soon. Hopefully God can one day change our lives from meaningless, unanswerable hevel to purposeful, meaningful life forever. And that hope that the teacher briefly touches on at the end of his book, that hope is what should fuel us to fear God and to keep his commandments. That hope should inspire us to live a life of honesty and integrity, despite anything else that might be going around us, despite the fact that we may be struggling with mental health, <clears throat> despite the fact we may be struggling with our identity or we may be struggling finding a purpose in life. Despite being puzzled by life's mysteries, we can and we should be confident in our God and look past the heaven life now to a future, to a hope of judgment and salvation to come. This hope that the teacher touches on in Ecclesiastes is not just the hope of Ecclesiastes. This is the hope of the entire Bible. And while the teacher might have spent most of his words on the fleetingness of life, he does give us a small glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 12. And so let's ex try and expand on this small glimmer of hope. Let's build out what this hope is, find out what this hope is for us, and why this hope of judgment is so worth looking forward to. There's two New Testament passages which can answer this question for us. The first one is in 1 Thessalonians 2. It says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? It's asking the same question we're asking now. What is our hope? And Paul, who wrote this, says that we are his hope. We're his joy and that his hope and joy will be realized at Jesus' coming. And so our hope, too, will also be realized when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. And the second quote backs it up perfectly from Titus 2.13 says that we're waiting for our blessed hope, and that hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ returning to this earth is our hope. When he returns, he will have judgment, like Ecclesiastes says. He'll judge between our works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. He'll put a distinction between those who know and love and serve God and those who don't. And we're not left to guess this, Christ tells us all of this in detail in Matthew 25. He says plainly, when the Son of Man will come in his glory, all the angels with him, when he's coming back to the earth, he's going to sit on the throne of his glory. And before him will be gathered all nations. And he'll separate them, the one from the other, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. <clears throat> and the king will say to those on his right hand, come, Ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done the good works from Ecclesiastes 12, inasmuch as ye have done those good works to the least of these, my brethren, it's like you've done it to me. 
Then he says to those on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. God in Christ, don't just let us try and figure it out by ourselves. It's right there, clear as day, for all of us to read. His plan, his morals, his truth, his purpose, his hope, his kingdom. It's all in his word, the Bible. And God's word is anything but hevel. There's no meaningless or mystery in God's word. It's been recorded for us to read, to study, and to use as a tool and as a guidebook for our life so that when Christ does return, we can be on that group on Christ's right so we can join him in his kingdom for eternity. And so, in conclusion, let's fast forward to today and recap what we've talked about tonight. In our world today, young people struggle with mental health, with substance abuse, with unemployment. And not the cause, but one cause of this has been the deterioration of two-parent married households. One that we've shown has come about because of a disregard for God's way and God's morals. And then we spoke about the fact that young people need a strong, reliable foundation of truth, a foundation to build their life and their character on. Today's subjective truth does the complete opposite. It's God's truth, the truth, that can provide this strong foundation and help provide young people, especially, with a sense of who they are. And thirdly, we saw the flaws in looking at, for our purpose in life, magically trying to find it, because our builder and our maker has already told us our purpose. It's to fill this earth with God's character. And finally, we've looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. We realize that the world we live in is hopeless. Everything is utterly hevel. But thankfully, we have a hope from God's word, a hope of our Lord Jesus Christ returning to this earth and setting up God's kingdom. And our hope is joining Christ in that kingdom, living forever with him, forever having God's morals, God's truth, having God's character. That's what's in the Bible for young people. And that hope is the same whether you're 15 or whether you're 95. It's the same hope since 4000 BC to 2023 today. And it will continue to be the same hope next year and however long we have until Christ returns. Let's finish by giving thanks to the God and to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he gave us a new life by raising Jesus Christ from death. And this should and does fill us with a living and so we look forward to possessing the rich blessings that God keeps for his people, the hope God keeps for his young people in God's kingdom, however soon that may be.